Well, my name is Terrell Unruh. As uh, most of you know, I have the privilege of being an elder here at Eden Benoit Brethren Church, and it is my privilege to bring to you the word this morning. As you may know, Gary was out of town most of this week and asked me to, uh, about a month ago, to prepare a sermon, and so here it is. Our text for today is in Malachi, Malachi chapter 1. If you don't know where Malachi is, it's one book back from Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. This is the last book of the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, you can look in one of the Bibles in the seat ahead of you, and it is on page 801. As you're turning there, ask the question, why do we study the Old Testament? It's because... An understanding of the Old Testament is critical to our understanding of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see the nature and character of God on display. We learn of our need for a Savior. And in it is illustrated the work of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Let's read God's Word this morning. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. The oracle of the Lord of the Lord. Some of your Bibles may say burden. Both of these words capture an idea of the word here in Hebrew. Oracle, in that this is divine. It's not earthly. It's come to us directly from God. And burden is a heavy weight for the messenger as well as the hearer's. And when God speaks, it is both purposeful and timeless, and mankind falls silent. We must entreat Him that we may learn from His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. We pray that You might give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. That You would speak through Your Word. Father, may we not take your word lightly, but may you impress upon us its importance and what you have written to us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we finished up in March a sermon series entitled God of Our Fathers, where we took a look at the life of Abraham and his faith and God's dealings with him. Today, we're moving forward 1,550 years later to the last book of the Old Testament. 
Malachi is often overlooked, and maybe it's because it's the last book and we're eager to get on to Matthew and, and get to Christ, but uh, maybe it's even the, the strange literary style of statements and questions being exchanged throughout the book. But whatever the reason, this is a rich book. It speaks of the greatness of God, the true role of a priest, sin's effects in the congregation, and what the day of the Lord will look like. And to fully understand this book, we need to understand a bit of the history leading up to this point. And I hope to kind of walk you through that as we go this morning. But the opening words of God here contain what I believe is, is the main thrust of this passage. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? My main proposition of what this passage is saying is this, that we do not understand God's love. And for those of you that have been studying the Word of God and, and have seen God moving throughout Scripture and, and throughout history, this may not be a surprise to you, but for some of us this may be confusing. And I hope by the time we're done here I can illustrate this for you as to why I'm saying that we do not understand God's love. This is the people of Israel answering back to God, saying, how have you loved us? And this is a question that is born out of despair. The people have become indifferent towards God. And if you're familiar with the history, you might wonder why. You remember back to Abraham and how God gave him a great promise to give him the land of Canaan, to make him into a great nation with descendants as numerous as the sands of the seashore. And he said that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. Then you have Moses, and after the nation has multiplied into uh, the people of Israel, you have the exodus out of Egypt, and the Mosaic covenant is given. You have, during this time, water gushing from a rock. You have bread miraculously falling from the sky to feed the multitude for 40 years. You have the giving of the law accompanied by earthquakes, fire and smoke. The tabernacle is built, and you have the presence of God manifested in it. And you see the glory of God reflected in the face of Moses. And you have these promises also that if you follow me, I will bless you greatly. But if you forsake me, I will send judgment until you return. Then you have King David, and God expands on the promise given, given to Abraham. He gives him a, a covenant, and this is what drives the hope of Israel, this covenant. Its promises are huge in moving us towards Christ, and it's what dominates the minds of the disciples as, they, uh, as we encounter them in the Gospels. In short, God promises David a great name, permanent peace and prosperity for Israel through him, a son who will sit on David's throne forever and prosper, a promise of discipline if he commits iniquity, but his steadfast love, God says, will not depart from him as it did from Saul. And we have David's son Solomon, and he built a magnificent temple, and the glory of God comes and fills this temple right in front of the people. 
And they experience peace and prosperity as they never had before. And with such a great history, with the glory and the promises of God, we would not expect this nation, or we would expect them to continue on like such, with God's promises. But a little over 500 years from Solomon, we don't find the people of Israel at that place anymore. Fifty years prior to Malachi, Nehemiah and Ezra record the um, people that are in Israel's congregation at the time to be fewer than the population of our own town here, 42,000 plus. And the temple is not even the same. Nehemiah records the construction of that new temple, and he says the older men who had seen Solomon's temple beforehand in all its glory wept at the foundation being laid of this one. And God says through the prophet Haggai, does this temple not seem to you like nothing in comparison? And he gives this promise to them, I will fill this house with glory. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. But there is no glory when it's finished. And there is no king. In fact, the people are under Persian rule. And so maybe you can understand a little bit why the people ask the question they do. How have you loved us? You've made promises to us and you haven't fulfilled them. Instead, you tear us down. Where is the promise of a great nation? The people as innumerable as the sands of the sea. Where is the glory of God in this second-rate temple? And where is the king that was promised to us? They suffer from despair that's born out of unfulfilled hope. And they ask, how have you loved us? And so God responds in the second part of verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And he asks them to remember two people whom you probably know. If we pick up where we left off in March, Isaac is given a wife, Rebekah, and she gives birth to two twins, Jacob and Esau. But before they're born, she's wondering, what's all this jumping around going on? What's this all about? And God tells her, you're going to have twins. But he says to her, the older shall serve the younger. Indicating that the younger boy, Jacob, would become the one by which God chooses to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And it happens that way. And so it, so it is that Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for some red pottage. And he earns himself the nickname Red, or Edom. And because of this, his descendants are called Edomites, or just Edom, as we see in this morning's passage. Jacob also manages to steal his brother's firstborn blessing from his father. And out of fear, he flees, Jacob flees north to his mother's family. Esau eventually conquers a place called Mount Seir, and interesting in the Hebrew, this is uh, the mountain of hair. If you remember, Esau was a hairy man. It's a shaggy mountain. Uh, I find it interesting that it's named for him that, in that way. This is a mountainous region in what is modern-day Jordan. And he has five sons who continue on his name in that place. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And from his two wives, he has... Twelve sons who become the twelve tribes of Israel. 
But what's the significance of these two? Why does God mention them here, and why is their story recorded for us? God is illustrating something to us of how he works with mankind, and the lesson that we learn from these two here in Malachi is that God's love is selective. And that's the first point I want to make today from this passage, that God's love is selective. To really understand this statement, though, we need to understand a biblical view of mankind. According to the Bible, the relationship between man and God is one of separation. Mankind is given over to sin, and God has promised judgment. Consider Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our unrighteous deeds are like filthy garments. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? Psalm 51 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Meaning that he was corrupted by sin even at his conception. So if we understand a biblical view of mankind, we shouldn't be surprised by this statement, Esau have I hated. And by the way, we can't reduce that to anything less than what it says. Scripture is full of these kind of words, abhor, despise, wrath, even indignation like we see later here. And this isn't just an Old Testament teaching, it's a New Testament teaching as well. In Romans chapter 1, we see the words, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And those who practice such things are worthy of death. And you know this one, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if we approach this passage biblically, we know that both Jacob and Esau are worthy of God's judgment because they are both born under sin. But we see here something else in the nature of God. We see His mercy. And it's expressed in love towards one of these boys. God chooses to demonstrate His love to Jacob. And He does so in a very fascinating scenario in the context of twins. And I like to think of this as a scientific experiment. In a science lab, you try to replicate your environment over and over to see if you get the same results. And here, our experiment, as it were, is to see if God will act the same towards two people that are, in a manner of speaking, the same person. They're twins. And they're born into the covenantal family. They're both in that family of Abraham. God could choose both, He chose 12 sons of Jacob, but he doesn't choose both here. And his choice is not based on performance. God makes his choice before either one of these boys are born. And you might say, well, God looks into the future and he sees the things that Esau will do and the things that Jacob will do, and he he says, well, Jacob's my man. But that's not biblical either. If we look at the the sins of Jacob, if we compare these two in the record, we see 
Jacob cheating, stealing, lying. There's not near as much recorded about Esau. And in fact, he is the recipient of much of that lying and cheating and stealing. And we look at the nations that came from them. Israel's sins are recorded to be far worse than the nations surrounding them. And Edom's one of those nations. Edom's are no doubt evil, but not as long-lasting nor as heinous as Israel's. And nowhere does Scripture hint about God taking action, giving punishment or reward ahead of time for future sins of man. God only gives warning ahead of time. And it is only after men's actions that he pronounces a verdict. This choice is according to his purpose alone. And this is the exact same argument that Paul makes in Romans chapter 9. If you want to turn there, and you may put a bulletin insert in this section of Romans. We're going to be back and forth this morning. Romans chapter 9, verse 6 through 13 <clears throat> I won't read all of these verses, but Paul is making the argument that just because you're born into the nation of Israel doesn't mean you're one of God's chosen people. He says in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But it is said, Through Isaac your descendants will be named And if you look down to verse 10, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, and when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And he quotes Malachi where we are this morning. The same can be said of us today too. Just because we're born into Christian homes, we're raised in the church, or we're members here at EMB, it doesn't mean that we're saved. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. So let's get back to Malachi. God answers Israel's question with a reminder of the choice he has made. And it reads further. Verse 3, But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build but I will tear down. So God's statement of love and hate moved beyond the two individuals to their descendants here. And you notice a name change from Esau to Edom. You notice the singular he changes to we. God is now speaking of the nation of Edom as an extension of his dealing with Esau. Likewise, he's speaking of Israel by implication here. And we see God's severity in what he has done to the nation of Edom. And this is my second point this morning. 
that demonstrates that we do not understand God's love, and that is that God's love is severe. God's love is severe. I believe the contrast of these two nations becomes for us a contrast of how God works with the chosen people of his own and the unrighteous person. God in reality has been severe on both of these nations, but for two different purposes. For Israel, it has been for the purpose of repentance and holiness, but for Esau, it has been for destruction. Before I go further here, let's notice another name change, and that's the name of God. Verse 4, up to this point we've seen the word Lord, which is in the Hebrew the, the personal name for God, Yahweh. You know it as the, the, the words of God to, Abraham, or to Moses, I am who I am. This is God's personal name. But here in verse 4 it changes from Yahweh, just Yahweh, to Yahweh, Yahweh Sabaoth. Or the Lord of hosts. Literally, this can be translated Yahweh of armies. And it's no new name for Israel. One of the first usages of this name, you know very well. It's the words that David used to Goliath. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel. This name references, without a doubt, God's angelic hosts. But more importantly, it declares His power and authority to command all creation. He is, no short, no, he is not short of any servants on earth. In Joel, He commands plagues of locusts. In Isaiah, He commanded the armies of Assyria against Israel. He says there, "...against a godless nation I send Assyria." But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy. This is Yahweh of hosts, who calls Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. This is the Lord of hosts, who stands watch over Israel, who punishes the unrighteous, but also disciplines his people. And it is because of that reason that we find ourselves looking at a nation in despair here in Malachi. You see this nation in despair, but let's, let's look for a bit at the contrast between these two nations. As I take you back in history, you first see the nation of Israel in Egypt, where they've multiplied, and I think most of you are familiar with the Exodus out of Exodus, you have the giving of the laws of God. And interesting enough, one of those laws is that we are not to, they are not to detest an Edomite, for it says, he is your brother. After the Exodus, on the way to the promised land, Israel is going up and they need to cross through Edom's land on the king's highway. And Edom, after they've asked permission to pass through and, and promised not to touch anything, and if they drink any water, they would pay for it. Edom comes down with their armies and Israel takes a different route around. During the reign of David, Joab's cap, Joab, the captain of David's army, is said to have struck down every male in Edom. 
And he camped there for six months to do this. And only one man is recorded to have escaped from the royal line. And later God raises him up against David's son Solomon after he falls away from God. But Israel, following their kings, plummets into horrible sin and idolatry. The Lord of hosts raises up armies against Israel and her kings to cause them to repent and cry out to him. In 2 Kings 8.20 it says, In the days of Jehoram, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. So Edom revolted against Judah to this day. And so we see the first time that Edom seems to break free of the promise of God that Jacob would rule over Edom. Finally, God has had enough of the sin of Israel, and he says it has become too much, and I will pass over it no longer. And he puts a a curse on the king of Israel, David's son, Jeconiah. He says, Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule any more in Judah. And suddenly God's promise to David seems to be retracted. And he sends Nebuchadnezzar against Israel and they are carried off to Babylon. For because of the anger of the Lord, it says, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, that he finally cast them out of his presence. If you want to picture of the severity of this judgment on Israel and the things that they suffered that God brought upon them because of their sin, I encourage you to read Lamentations. But what about Edom? Obadiah gives us a a picture into the window of that time during the siege of Jerusalem. And you see Edom in a progression. You see him standing by and doing nothing during the siege to help his brother. In fact, you see them cheering when the walls fall and the, the city is, is conquered. Then you see them plundering the city. Then you see them standing at the crossroads and cutting down the refugees as they flee. Finally, you see them imprisoning the survivors. And God says this to Edom in Lamentations, The cup will come around to you as well. You will become drunk and make yourself naked. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will expose your sin. And so Edom also was driven away from their homeland and exiled. And their lineage is traced through history for a short time, but eventually they disappear and they're not known anymore. For 50 years, Israel is in exile in Babylon and Persia. Until, they re, until the return recorded by Nehemiah and Ezra, and you have the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. And so we see God's judgment on both nations because of their actions. For Israel, it was very severe, as you can read. But it was not the end. It was to purify them. It was discipline. But for Edom, their judgment was not for their good. It was for their destruction, and it is forever. And for those of us today, these two nations stand as a warning to cling to God and abandon our sin. As you sit here this morning, 
Do you take warning from this? God is still Lord of hosts. And I see that, think of three different types of people that can learn from this. The first is if you are not born again, if you are still in your sins, you have only the promise of judgment and eternal destruction just as Edom. But there's hope. There's hope for you. God commands you to repent and believe in Jesus and you will receive forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. The second person I see that can learn from this, if you are a believer and you are not walking in godliness, take warning from the judgment on Israel. I ask you to consider these words from, the, from Paul in Romans. We can turn back there. This time we'll be in chapter 11, verse 21 to 22. Paul is answering the question, what about the nation of Israel at this time? They don't seem to be a nation. What, what's up with that? They are pictured as a branch in this passage. It has been cut off of the olive tree. And those of us who are in Christ have been grafted into that same tree. And he says to the believers, don't be arrogant. And in verse 21 he says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the king, kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And we remember the promises in Hebrews of God disciplining his children. And if you are without discipline, it says, then you are illegitimate sons. You are not sons, you are not of God. So take warning. The third person I see in this passage that can take warning and learn from this is if you are a believer today and you find yourself suffering because of difficult times, circumstances, loss of health or loss of loved ones, and you have taken careful examination of your life and you have a clear conscience. Take comfort in the Lord of hosts. For if he can call Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, this thing you are dealing with is also his servant. Consider our Savior who did not sin, yet learned obedience through suffering. This is God's hand for you, hand, and it is for your eternal good out of his love for you. So what is it that keeps us from understanding God's love? It is that we have the wrong priorities and perspective. God has an eternal perspective and holy priorities. And his love is severe because of that. Let's look back at Malachi again, verse 4. My third point today is God's love is steadfast. For it is a... Let me turn back to the right chapter here. Verse 4, though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. What he is saying here is, remember my choice. 
Remember my choice of Jacob and remember that I followed through. Look at the severity I had with Edom. And he gives him this promise for the future here. And we get just a hint of God saying, I am the Lord, I change not. Each of God's attributes are tied to each other. We can't separate them. His love is tied to his wrath. His love is tied to his sovereignty, his power over all things. His love is tied to his immutability, which basically means he is changeless. And because God is eternal and powerful, and he does not change, Israel can know that his love will not fail because his indignation towards the unrighteous does not fail. And who among us, who among man, can love with an unchanging love? We struggle to love our spouses some days, the most intimate relationship that we have. God's love, however, is steadfast. And so we have to ask, what happened to these promises then to Israel through Abraham, Moses, and David? Here we are 2,400 years later. Paul says in Romans chapter 11 where we were, verse 28, he says his choice still stands and that they are beloved. Israel is. And he says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God may have set them aside for a time in order to bring those of us into the promises, but his promises are not void to them. And Malachi is not the end of the story. We still have a third of the Bible yet to go. And so are the words we see if we just flip over a few pages to the book of Matthew, the opening words there. It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the King, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we see in Jesus the fulfillment of all of these promises. The Abrahamic covenant. And in Christ, we see people out of all the nations being blessed who put their trust in him. The Mosaic Covenant was completely done away with because Christ fulfilled the law. He sacrificed himself for sins once for all of his chosen. He does this as the great high priest. And he came as man and dwelt among us, not as a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. The Davidic covenant says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and my steadfast love will not depart from him. Who is this? This is Jesus the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And what of the temple? We see God building us up into a far more glorious temple made of living stones, as Peter says. If you find yourself outside the covenants of God today, I urge you to enter through this man, Jesus, who is the sacrifice for sin. The Bible says it is a free offer to those who repent and place their hope and trust and faith in him. And so finally, my fourth point today is that God's love secures our worship. Read with me verse 5. Your eyes will see this and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. 
And this is, of course, what drives everything, is God's glory. Psalm 18 and Psalm 136 both begin the same. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness endures forever. This love of God should draw us into awe and wonder of His ways. But the language is much stronger than a should. It is a will. You will see this. He will secure worship for Himself. And this is what God seeks, as you remember a few weeks ago in May. We looked, took a look at John 4, the woman at the well, and, and we read this, but a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such as these to worship Him. If you want to turn back to Romans, this will be the last time we'll switch here. After discussing a lot of these things that we've talked about this morning, Paul's about to move from the truth of God into the practical application of the truth in, in chapter 12, but he can't, and he ha- he's overwhelmed, and he bursts forth in praise to God in verse 33, Romans 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways, How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, May you receive glory from what you have done. Father, may we see the weight of your severity. May we see and rejoice that you have purchased us out of all the tribes of the earth for a people for your name. Father, may we rest in your everlasting loving kindness. And Father, worship you with our whole heart. I pray for this congregation, Father, that we might love you with our whole heart, just as you have loved us and gave yourself up for us. Amen.